But I think the the definition or the understanding of what risk means is different in North America than in Europe. Hello, everybody. My name is Walter Steinkogler, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome to the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversation within the snow and avalanche world. My name is Matthias Walcher, and I am your host for this episode. Together with my co-host Paul Dobesberger, we are both from the Austrian Association for Snow and Avalanches. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Wissen Avalanche Control, safety through innovation, with additional support from 10 Barrel Brewing and Into West Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. On the weekend, we got some new snow here in the Alps and the snowpack is almost deep enough to start heading into the backcountry. Well, to be honest, it's, it's not quite enough, at least here in the eastern part of the Alps, eastern Switzerland, Austria, Bavaria, it is still very likely that you will get some scratches on your skis when you go into the backcountry. Anyway, snow on the ground means avalanche danger. Christoph Mitterer from the Tyrolean Avalanche Warning Service will tell us how the snowpack looks like and what the avalanche danger is. Hi Christoph, welcome again to the show. Hi Matthias, uh, thanks again for inviting me. I'm pretty stoked to be back again on uh, this uh, episode of yours. Yeah, great to have you here. So, is it safe out there at the moment, Christoph? Oh, uh, it depends where you are, but uh, uh, we have quite uh, some uh, some nasty spots uh, hidden in the snowpack. And as you said, uh, there's uh, barely enough snow to uh, to ski around. There are uh, tons of hidden sharks waiting for uh, for your new skis to get the first uh, deep cut. Uh, and of course, uh, a lot of wind-loaded pockets with uh, faceted and uh, depth for crystals below. So that's a very typical situation for early season, I would say, here in the Alps, that we get um, small spills of of snow um, and then longer, drier, sunnier periods where we uh, where the snowpack facets. Um, is that very similar to past winters, you would say? Is that a typical scenario here in the Alps or is it um, somewhat special this season? Well, it uh, uh, used to be typical, I would say, but uh, climate change has shown us uh, different scenarios over the past uh, few years. Uh, in the past few years, we typically get a huge, big first dump, um, followed by dry and warm conditions. Uh, this time, it's a little bit different. Uh, as you said, we have those tiny... Uh, 10 to 20, sometimes 30 centimeters spills and in between prolonged cold uh, weather prevails. Uh, and this is, of course, favoring uh, faceting and uh, a weak base of the upcoming season's snowpack. Could you give us a small summary how the snowpack looks at the moment with regard to its depth, uh, with, with regard to 
different layers maybe uh, like just a general overview for the eastern part of the alps here of course i can do that so uh typically a sound and good snowpack starts at around 1200 to 1300 meters uh there you have a uh, about 30 centimeters of, of snow uh, the base is mostly con consists mostly of small facets and in wind sheltered pockets you have uh, wind slabs sitting on 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 those faceted uh, layers or one faceted layer with rather small facets but nasty ones so if you trigger an avalanche there uh, you probably uh, will have the entire snowpack uh, uh, running on that, which is not a lot. So uh, we see typically size one and a half to two uh, at the moment. Um, uh, but the further you get up to high elevation, so glaciated area, uh, which, which we typically ski at the moment, uh, then you will find a little bit of more snow uh in there so you have like 50 to 60 centimeters of snow sitting there and uh also there uh, same picture more or less maybe one or two uh old crusts from a very early uh autumn big dump in september uh with facets around that crust but otherwise you will have larger facets uh, sitting above those crusts with uh, loaded wind pockets. And again, we see um, avalanches running on those facets. Uh, and the typical size here is around size 2 avalanche. Mm -hmm. So we're in, let's say, above 2,000 to 2,500 meters. We are in between danger level 2 and 3 depending on the possible size of the avalanche and its distribution mainly, right? Yeah, it's correct. That's mainly uh, the frequency distribution and the size that uh, uh, that is uh, dominating the avalanche danger level because uh, um, snowpack stability is rather poor everywhere where you can ski at the moment. So you have mostly this this very um, yeah, weak uh, structure of the snowpack with uh, those facets and uh, a combination of facets and, and, and wind slabs. Mm -hmm. So we have older buried wind slabs. And we have new wind slabs um, sometimes on top of, of, of facets, which can be um, seen by, by skiers and avoided accordingly. Um, what is your strategy? now with regard to Tyrol in order to communicate the avalanche danger um, um, regarding avalanche problems as well? How, how do you communicate the, the situation at the moment where everybody sees that there is actually not a lot of snow, but it is a, it is a situation which can get dangerous very fast because it's actually those um, couloirs and stuff where there's enough snow in it where, what, where you can ski, but that, there you can also find the the hidden pockets which you can trigger and then you're dragged over rocks and can get injured quickly so within the bulletin within the forecast really focus on the persistent weak layer problem so uh, we tell them that there is uh, a weak 
structured snowpack with wind slabs on top that it's hard to recognize that problem. Uh, even though if you see wind slabs, uh, it might not be easy uh, to assess uh, the local danger during uh, your descent. And of course, uh, with all our other channels, we try uh, to reach out to our clients saying that those pockets that look nice are dangerous at the moment and uh, that they hurt. So you said we have not a lot of snow and, and, and I think that this is, uh, this is part of the problem. So uh, if you um, trigger an avalanche, I think it's not uh, burial the most concern you have at the moment, but it's more hitting rocks mm -hmm. and, and, and get dragged over, over small cliffs or within uh, rocky couloirs. So this is going to hurt if it's happened. Thank you very much, Christoph, for these insights. Very interesting, as always, to talk to you at the beginning of this show. And um, certainly we will uh, hear each other uh, again in, in January or February or so for the next episode. Thank you, Christoph. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a nice and uh, safe season start. Yeah, you as well. <laughs> um, and now we are jumping right into the main part of this show, our interview with uh, Walter Steinkogler which I, I recorded uh, just a few days ago together with Paul Dobesberger. Enjoy the interview and uh, have a safe season. Hello and welcome to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Um, I'm happy to announce today that a friend of mine and a board member of the Austrian Association for Snow and Avalanche is joining me today for this interview, and that's Paul Dobesberger. Paul Dobelsberger is an avalanche professional as well. He's a specialist for artificial avalanche control with explosives. And he's just the right co-host for today for this interview with Walter Steinkogler. Hi, Paul. Hi, Walter. Welcome, both of you, to the podcast. Hello, Matthias. Thanks for having us. Walter Steinkogler. He's um, the chief operating officer of Wissen and also the CEO of Wissen Canada and the USA. He currently lives and works out of Davos in Switzerland. That's where also the SLF, the Federal Institute for Snow and Avalanche Research, is based in Switzerland. And uh, yeah, Walter, First of all, what is the difference between the chief operating officer and the CEO, or what is a chief operating officer doing? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> and I think it's, for me, it's always means uh, it's, it's many different things, wearing many different hats. Uh, I think what it means in a nutshell is that, uh, so I'm, I'm working at the, at the group level of Wiesen Avalanche Control in the management board. And that means I'm sort of the link between all the countries and all the people and mainly on the project level. So we are trying to really understand what the clients need in the different countries and also what we need to develop or maybe adjust our systems or solutions to fit to that market or to that uh, industry sector. So it's kind of an interface between different countries, different clients into our company. 
So that's really that part, I would say. That that kind of summarizes that in a nutshell. So making sure this information flows fluently uh, in both directions, really. And, okay. and, and the other role you mentioned is that I'm still involved in the uh, VEASAN US and VEASAN Canada uh, on the general management level after starting this, this part. But now they are pretty much running on their own. So we have really cool teams there. Um, and they are yeah, running the show there. <laughs> Very interesting. So the COO seems to be a chair which fits you quite well. Um, when we look at your past, your uh, um, diverse experiences you you, you had in uh, in North America for or especially and also in Europe, so you have been involved um, in different operations there, working in the avalanche industry. Can you um, tell us a little bit about your yeah about your past and and how you ended up in the avalanche community? Well, I think that's simple. I'm just a skier and I love snow and I love mountains. And that's that's how it all started. And that's where the passion still comes from today. Uh, and then it, it's really like, I think we were 14 or 15 years old, ripping around at our home resort. Awesome powder day. And it was the day I saw my first friend disappear in avalanche. He got spit out at the end and nothing really happened. Nobody back then had beacons or anything. Um, crazy to think about it those days. And back then, of course, it was a fun story. But even after that, I started realizing, okay, if you want to do this thing of skiing, off-piste, ski touring, free riding a bit longer, you need to understand more of it. So that got me really into avalanches, to, to, to really start reading and, and you know, diving into the details. And, you know, after, you know, finishing high school, you think, okay, so what, what do I actually have to do to make a living out of this? And then what, what paths can you go? And then, and, and yeah, from there, it, it went to looking at more ski instructing. Uh, did that a little bit, and then you start studying. And I went into the metrology direction. So I thought, okay, snow comes out of the sky. So metrology might be, might be a good starting point. And then uh, that, that led me to snow and avalanche research, where I stand, spent quite a few years. Um, working there, which was great, really good fun. I mean, just, you know, getting pretty much paid to, to try new things, to try new things that nobody mm -hmm. tried before. And that was a really great experience, but I always, I got a little bit frustrated at the end when we, we, we had something really cool and you think, okay, this might be useful now for a ski resort or, mm -hmm. a, or a road department or whoever, uh, or the public. And then, but then research pretty much stops, right? And, yeah. and so that got me into the industry side again, industry side, but with a strong, you know, part of trying, having the ability to try new things. And, mm -hmm. and, and so far that has been working pretty good with where I'm currently at. Yes. If I'm, if I'm right after your PhD at the SLF, uh, where you focused on, on artificial avalanche release, you went to, to Alaska and uh, you worked for a heliskiing company for, for a season. And then you, ended up working there uh, is that correct yeah it was actually sort of a transition phase uh, it was before the phd work um but yes i i was just ski bumming road tripping through canada and taking the first courses really there on the north american side of things just to get the sense what's the difference to europe i was always very curious in that And then I never planned to spend a full season there, but you know how these things go. And snow was awesome, um, good team, and you you spend 
a season in Alaska, which was for sure a good memory. Will stick with me for the rest <laughs> of my life. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the differences between Europe and North America, I'm curious. You are an expert in um, in avalanche protection measures, both active and 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 uh, permanent. I would say. What are the differences between North America and Europe here? Um, big, I would say. I mean, when we when well, let's start a bit of the technical side, mm -hmm. looking at the, the history of what has been technically done. And, um, you know, where, where I live here in this town or when you're driving through the Alps, you see all these tunnels, galleries, defensive structures, they're all over the place. And then you go to North America and then, of course, there's much less of that for a variety of reasons. And, and uh, there's, there's no good or bad in it. It's just the, the way it is. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, um, Europe has, of course, uh, a longer history when it comes to really living in the mountains and extensively using it. Uh, also for tourism, and that has been growing, as we all know, and, and the demand for open roads has been growing, or the, I should say the acceptance for even short closes is just very different than many years ago here in Europe. Mm -hmm. So the pressure was high to invest. And, and we saw this, I think, in different phases over the last decades, where at some point they started pushing more on hazard mapping. So the whole engineering side of where you can build or where you need you cannot build then defensive structures uh, or, or structural measures up in the release zones, barriers and so on. And then also tunnels, berms and all of that. So heavy earthworks. That, that's all over the place here when you go through through the mountains. And then the last 20 years or so, all this artificial release with, with rack systems has been really picked up. Um, and of course, other measures like heli-bombing or so are still common practice. Not so much army weapons anymore in Switzerland. This was allowed for until three years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. That's not allowed anymore. So it's really only civilian applications. And when you make the jump now to North America, it's it's way more based on temporary measures or or forecasting or proactive control with heli bombing, uh, artillery, both Canada at Rogers Pass or also in the States, many ski resorts and DOTs use artillery. Uh, to control their avalanche hazards, so a very different, you know, tech, a very different way of tackling the avalanche avalanches, I would say. And I think it's valid for the states and Canada. It, it's just a geography, right? I mean, you just have much further distances to cover, and so you have a limited budget. You need to invest it for your entire infrastructure. So it's not even possible to just build a tunnel everywhere or a gallery uh, or something like that, uh, and. Uh, And maybe even to throw in a, let's say, let's throw in an example that I always find a bit in the middle, which is Norway. Uh, it's, uh, it does not have per se a, a really rich history in avalanche forecasting or active control. It has a really strong history in building tunnels. So they build tunnels wherever they can. But even they figured out now they can optimize these spendings by either building one tunnel that solves one problem, or they could use different measures uh, that are cheaper than a tunnel. and use a risk management approach when I'm speaking of avalanches here to tackle wider areas or multiple areas. And I think that's just, that is very true for North America uh, too. Uh, you have a limited budget. You could either spend it to fix one problem, but that still leaves you with 30 other problems, right? So uh, we had many projects where we came there and, and we were debating a little bit with the client and say, hey, we can put rocks there. 
towers. Okay, that's not a problem. We got to control the avalanche problem, but you should really look into a gallery. Uh, but that's that doesn't always work, right? I mean, that's it that takes too long to build. The money is there now; it's not there in the next few years. So, tunnels are tricky to build and galleries, I think. And what came out of that, I think, is in in North America, especially again speaking for both countries here, I think is a really strong uh, industry and and culture even uh, that, that that is extremely strong on the forecasting side and even how the people think and how it, it, things have been standardized. It's, it's. I think if you look at it in the percentage way, right? I mean, the biggest percentage is using this technique. I mean, using proactive control. Uh, there could be closures, there could be shooting artillery, there could be helicopter uh, bombing. Um, and, and I think that's a big difference to here. Mm-hmm. I think that that cultural difference and that experience, yeah. But why do you think that it's, uh, yeah, it's only a cultural thing, or is it really that maybe the acceptance in North America of closures for roads or railways is, uh, yeah, it's more accepted than than in Europe, or why are there not so many uh, permanent measures? Yeah, I, I think I mean acceptance is is rather relative and, and subjective feeling, but nobody likes a road closure, right? It doesn't matter where you live, I think. And when we look at again, maybe taking a Trans Canada as an example, or one of the larger interstates, if you're closing one of those major corridors uh, for an extended period of time, then the towns on both sides start filling up with trucks and cars. And the longer you keep it, then suddenly the, tra- the towns are full. There's no parking space and goes even further. So th- that that's a pain. Uh, and I think acceptance, the people would prefer to, to not have that happen. So the goal is there to optimize that and reduce these closures as much as possible. Uh, but again, I think the technical history or... or Available funding to invest in technical uh, invest uh, technology resulted in the culture. It's not the other way around. I think the culture was driven out of that. That that's what the people have. That that it's not that everybody would love a shed or a tunnel, but it's not what you can always do or get. Versus in Europe, there have been there are way more people uh, in some of the areas, and uh, have been investments taking place over many decades. Uh, yeah, and so we just have way more infrastructure around to protect from natural hazards. Yes, Walter, you are part of a company which operates in Europe as well as in North America. And earlier, you mentioned that the culture, how people think in the avalanche community, is quite different over there and here. Um, where are these differences? That that's a, one of the more fascinating. Uh, aspects of our job or where we are as a team or a company, I think, is seeing all these these differences. Uh, And I mean that in a positive way. Uh, I mean, culture can be really a a society, a culture or an industry, a certain culture. And if you go to a a North American ski resort, the approach is very different how they run their operation uh, compared to European resort, right? I mean, North American resorts, usually they have gates, they have a rope around their resort. So there's a clear line where you're inbound and where you're out of bounds. And then also the terrain within their 
resort they control extremely proactive or they have to they cannot just leave a big slope unprotected uh just from a legal point of view even versus here in the alps we don't have ropes around our resorts there are no in or out of bounds either you're on the piste or you're off piste mm -hmm. so that means even between two pistes a, a small piece of terrain that that can produce an avalanche uh is, is most of the time not controlled unless it endangers the piece itself uh or or a chairlift or a building or whatever so that that results in a very different way to operate uh these resorts and and I, I, again here it comes to extremely proactive forecasting i mean when, when i visit north american clients and, and listening to how they they approach their the avalanche problems in their resort they are like really into the details they're really they're understanding every piece of terrain and try to proactively control it and that's very impressive i find it's it's extremely impressive i mean also the european ones they are really good at knowing on what's going on in their resort but i don't think they have to they have to really tackle all these slopes around uh that are not directly part of the resort per se like compared to north american ones so that's a big big difference i find how you run a resort and also ties back into really the whole culture and lifestyle. I think uh, the whole ski patroller job itself is, is a bit different. I find in North America than, than here in, in North America, it's often really a lifestyle. People are really, they, they live that right. And you have way bigger staff usually like a North American resort has way more ski patrollers than a, than a European one just to be able to solve these challenges they have. Is there also some kind of difference in the approaches? Uh, um, maybe the North Americans maybe take more into account the risk than only the danger. So like it was before in, in Europe, there was only the danger and not so much the risks so or not the consequences were taken into account. Is this something different in North America? That's a bit of a tough one to answer uh, in general, as I mean, to give a general answer on that. I think it's a bit what you said. I think the the definition or the understanding of what risk means is different in North America than in Europe, I guess. I think in Europe, it's more hazard-based. Yeah, you're right. At least as, I mean, maybe not in the engineering world, there is definitely risk-based, but uh, but the rest is, is a bit more hazard-based or danger-based versus in North America, I think the understanding of, of risk management is uh, in a ski resource setting, I guess, a, a bit used or lift a bit uh, a bit more, I would say, yeah. They really need to think more where people could go, where could they get in trouble, even if a small slide. So, yeah. In that sense, I think these guys are more under pressure. Yeah. What are ways to think or strategies you took from Europe and you were able to use in North America and you thought which are kind of which helped you to solve problems there and have use on certain issues regarding um, snow and avalanches, what probably North Americans don't have or use. To, to start with a more general point of view, I would think that a learning we had, a clear learning was just start just going with a European or, or Swiss mindset or even a solution to a new country. And, and just applying it, it kind of works, but but it has its limitations or you will hit some walls. Uh, I think the 
way we have to, the way we approach it now, at least, is we try to take the best out of both worlds, really. I'm speaking here for the technical side and also for uh, cultural, uh, as we the word we used before. Uh, cultural, in a sense, how the clients operate, I think. Uh, on, the, on the technical side, I think there is a clear shift in North America towards rack systems. I mean, away from military guns, like very big guns, towards rack systems. We have seen in, in the last few years, uh, the shift took place here a few years earlier, like, as I mentioned, um, not using military weapons anymore for avalanche control. So that's for sure. So in the classical sense, using the avalanche tower, bringing it from Europe to the US, bring it to Canada, uh, adapting the system so it can be certified in the country, uh, finding the right explosives for it, and then installing it, putting it into operation, giving it a test and, uh, and and then, you know, making the case with it. And then that's how it, that worked well for us and has been accepted very well by the community and also by the authorities. So I think you can apply technology, although I would say you, you should really always think if you have to adapt it uh, or can adapt it to make it even better work for these countries. And I think purely going to the States or going to Canada uh, with a pure European mindset, you will not be successful on the business side. I think you should really, you you should have a very strong global uh, culture within your company and belief. But you need to have a, you need to consider the local specific things. So, uh, talking people, talking regulations, yeah, all of that. I think that's really key. Is is this also something you can see with heli bombing? So like in, in Europe, they normally have two and a five kilograms to five kilograms dropping it out of the helicopter. And as far as I know, in the US, they drop five to 10 kilograms out of the helicopters. There's, is there really the snowpacks so much different or is it a cultural thing? Oh, you can have very long you can have very long evenings of conversations about these topics uh like uh, how, how how big of a shot and with which explosive to use in which snowpack uh, I, I would say in a nutshell there are differences of snowpacks that that's for sure I mean looking at a continental snowpack it will react very differently from a maritime snowpack at the coast uh and also regulatory wise. Uh, I mean, Canada is different than the States. Within the States, you might have different, uh, I mean, between the States, you might have different regulations that you that you can use, for example. And then it comes down to what I found, a lot of personal preference and belief, what type of explosives works best in, in which setting, or, or also for which operation, right? I mean, some have big paths to control, some have smaller slopes, so that will define really what you use, I think. Um, but that's a that's a tough one to really to really answer. Or I could see myself getting into trouble if I have a too strong opinion <laughs> here. <laughs> An easier question would probably be why they're not using military weapons that much anymore. Yeah, that's. I mean, in Canada, it's the army itself operating the gun. In North America, uh, sorry, in the states, you use a. Uh, it's used by ski resorts and DOTs, and they are they are really professionals. They have a lot of training, a lot of experience there. But uh, it's really depending on the army, right? I mean, if the army at one day will say, "Hey, actually, we don't like you using our guns anymore," then then many operations will be really in trouble. Uh, so they are 
they're looking to to fading that a bit out uh, and looking more into racks uh, that have been successfully applied in many operations now. I would say it, it, I mean, it has been used very successful for a very long time in many operations. But I mean, you need to imagine you're shooting a really big artillery weapon into the mountainside. So it's 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 not necessarily environmentally friendly. You could say it's a lot of damage, and these guns were not designed to release avalanches. These these are war weapons, right? These these are designed to destroy objects or, or kill people. So it's not the best. I mean, you have shrapnels all over the mountain. So and then what you do when you have a, a dot, for example? I mean, you need to find it, uh, and then also the shots are getting more expensive, from what I've heard. So there are many reasons why people are looking into alternatives. And also it's efficiency. I mean, it takes a while to operate these guns. And with, with racks, the technology has advanced so much in the last few years uh, that these things are now, once they are installed, it, it's, it just saves them so much time. And it's much easier to handle than having to maintain one of these big guns. I think that's what we have heard from many uh, of the clients we, we worked with so far. I don't think it will happen that uh, they will all be replaced very soon, but I think there is a clear tendency. We have seen that in Little Cottonwood Canyon, where we started with the first tower. It was the Department of Transportation. After the ISSW, uh, I would say they didn't ask us to start in the States. They kind of forced us to start in the States and give it a try, which was hilarious. Uh, but they were really supportive and they just wanted to see how it works and learn and 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 then help us actually to get into the country. So they were extremely supportive to get the first tower in. And, and for them, this has really changed now how they operate, right? They, they could really make it safer, their operation, and more efficient. And that's nice. That That's for us just the, the coolest thing we can see. When, it, when the stuff we do, like when we do our job well, and in the end, it makes the job of the client safer or easier or maybe even cheaper, uh, then that's awesome. That's the best feedback we can get, right? So, yeah. But we have also seen it uh, on the example of Switzerland. You know, the, the usage of uh, military weapons was forbidden now, I think two years ago, something like this. Do you know maybe some a little bit more about why it was forbidden or what were the reasons why they are not allowed to use it anymore? There was always the saying that they're uh, running out of ammunition. But then for mysterious ways, they kept finding more and more and more. <laughs> I don't know which tunnels or bunkers where they had it. So I'm not sure if that there was really their main if that was really the main argument, they're running out of ammunition that they can supply to civilians to use. It's just the idea of having civilians using army weapons, I think. And you know, the, there are different kinds out of there, and they need to be really trained with them. Uh, and then there have been unfortunately some some accidents. In, in our industry using uh, these weapons and and then that just made the army really say hey no we're, we're stopping with that right there there are application uh, there are systems now that can be used there is technology that is specifically designed for for you know this environment and the job we want to do so let's use that That was not the case 20 years ago or 50 years ago when they started using army weapons. And that clearly changed when we talked initially about how all this evolved, how all this, the history of our industry 
how technology evolves. I think, yeah, in the end, I really hope uh, that we make things safer. Uh, and and I think in that case, fading out the, the army weapons in Switzerland, that's a really good case how things got safer. And I think that's good because it's already a challenging job. And I think, for example, separating explosives risk from avalanche risk uh, or not having it combined at the same day, that that's generally a good risk management approach. Yeah. I think it was a, a hard transition also for Switzerland because it has to be yeah, done in a couple of years or one to two years, something like this. Um, but yeah, I'm totally agree. So I think maybe it's better now than before, but it, it wasn't that easy. And maybe also the guys in North America are afraid of, of such a transition and maybe that's why they get more and more into also some, some rocks. Yeah, I, I, I totally believe so. And, you know, these things don't happen from one year to the other. When we are thinking of how an entire industry in a country or an industry sector is, is changing, for example, that, that takes a while. And it's there is a human factor in it. There is a, a financial factor in it. There is a cultural factor in it. There's, there's many ways in that, but it's for sure takes many years, yes. We have seen that the situation, how it is in Austria and Switzerland, it's easier, I would say, with the usage of uh, explosives for avalanche control. Can you tell us a little bit more about other European countries or countries in, in the Alps? Uh, for example, I think in Italy, it's a little bit complicated with the use of explosives for avalanche control. That's true. Yeah. I mean, looking at different countries, you have always different regulations and, uh, uh, that makes it it hard for some practitioners to use explosives-based systems, for example. So there, that's why we have also gas-based systems that are can be of great use in, in, in these countries where you have these restrictions. Uh, although I think, I mean, we, speaking of North America here is especially, we were always quite scared, I, I want to say, as a, as a company from from the legal aspects of working in Canada or the US. It was this classical European freakout, I would even say, uh, that that that's just not true, I think. I mean, you need to be, you know, doing you need to do your homework, you need to look at the at the legal factors and the legal aspects of it and do your due diligence, but you can totally work in these countries. And that's that's the same in each European country. Uh, you need to understand the rules of the game there. Uh, and either you accept to play with them or you try to change them. That's also a way you can go. Um, but thinking difference within Europe and thinking difference of Europe to North America, totally. There are many differences, but so far, it didn't matter where we started working. I have to say we had only positive experience. In the end, you need to find the right people and then they will really support you. Uh, as long as you do a good job, right? I mean, if you're doing something risky or make it riskier for the operators in the end, I think nobody would support you. Nobody would help you. But, you know, you make the case, you find your first clients to work with, and then the regulators, they usually support you along the way. That's what we have seen in, in every country mm -hmm. we've worked so far. It just takes time. Sometimes it takes long, sometimes not so much. And that's actually a funny example also with the US, if I may add that. Because we thought, okay, once the DOT of Utah started pushing us to get, a, get the first tower into the States, we thought it's going to take ages just to get the approval. Like if you look at Norway again, that took years just to get the approval there. 
Uh, and in the US, in the end, it was the fastest approval we ever got. <laughs> uh, and that just because the regulators, they, you know, we presented the case, or I should say the client did. Uh, that's that's why they want to have it. That's how it works. And that's why they should approve that or, or, or give a variance to the general regulations. And then they wanted to see what it does for a season. They were convinced of it. Then you can start. So I think you need to try. That's also big learning difference, Europe to North America. Uh, that's what I took home from North America. The other way is the, there it's way more just, just try. Just go and give it a try. And if you fail, okay, I bet you learned a lot. The European thinking is sometimes a bit more, ah, maybe we should not, maybe you know, maybe this could happen, that could happen. And and so that's definitely something I I, I took personally back home. But even as a, I think as a company, we learned um i mean don't be stupid of course and don't you need to do your homework as i said but but just give it a try yeah that's for sure there are also some some big difference in the the first step so before you have to uh yeah take control or make uh controlled avalanche releases so you have to take care of the weather and of the actual avalanche danger and in north america compared to europe there are big difference so we have really a a dense network of weather stations. We have the regional avalanche bulletins and then those, those local safety teams most of the time. And this is also completely different in the States or in, in Canada. Or? Oh, yeah. I, I think, generally speaking, yes. I mean, the investments that were done, especially after this avalanche winters, like, for example, after winter, avalanche winter 1999, 1999, I should say, in Austria and Switzerland, uh, you mentioned weather stations. There was a massive investment into getting more data from the release zones, from the mountains, more snow data, more wind data, more temperature data. And so there's an extremely dense network now of weather stations all over Austria or Switzerland or the entire Alps, really, versus in in other countries like Canada or, or the US, they, they, they don't have that. Or they have that in, in maybe in some regions, but not statewide or province-wide or or not nationwide, yeah. That that's that's for sure. Again, a difference in terms of, yeah. I, I think it comes also from how densely used the Alps are. I mean, it, it, every town. I mean, I think there is not really there are not many valleys where there's not a road. I think in the Alps. Uh, I'm not saying that all of them are used in winter, but just to make the example, there is a railway that that goes through many mountain towns. There are roads everywhere. There are people living, there are permanent residents, there are holiday homes, there are ski resorts. So it's just way more densely and heavily uh, used here. And that's, I think, resulted in all this more, more dense permanent measures, more dense network of weather stations, uh, more racks, more forecasting operations. In these local teams you mentioned, every community here has a, uh, an avalanche uh, commission pretty much. So that, that's different, yeah. In, in Canada and the States, it's way more spread out. And you have the difference between, of course, a, an authority like a Department of Transportation or a Ministry of Transportation in Canada, which is operating highways versus uh, ski resorts. So these are the two big players, I think, in, in on both sides of the ocean. But uh, yeah, ge geography plays quite heavily into there. Like, Big, big network 
of roads, for example, that you need to maintain, not just for avalanches, just to get the snow. Even if, when it's flat, snow can be a, uh, yeah. a bit. Uh, it's not the nice. It's not the nicest white stuff anymore. It's just okay. How do we get the white stuff off the road? <laughs> just people, so people can move. So since you also have a little bit background in in simulation of snowpack and and run out of snowpacks, do you think this will make or will we play a bigger role in the future? So we have seen that it's uh, yeah tested since years and or decades more or less, and it's getting more and more important. And is this something which is more important in North America than in Europe because there is not such a tense network of Uh, weather stations and also people looking into the snowpack. I, I definitely think so. I mean, these these things are advancing, right? On on many ends, like all this. What we have first off, we have way more data now of what we measure. Also, weather prediction, uh, numerical weather prediction models are getting way more accurate, and uh, we can forecast longer. Uh, and and this we have seen this especially in the meteorology world. And I think we see a similar tendency in the snow world. Um, snow cover models and dynamic models have been around for quite a while now. They have been improved heavily. And I think now in the last few years, really, we see that they are applied more. Like Especially for data space areas like in Canada, where they try to use this very widespread for... Uh, Uh, to run snow cover models there to get better information for the regional forecasting for the public, for example. So I think this makes total sense to go in this direction and maybe not only using the word models, but using data in general. Uh, here speaking uh, for a similarity between North America and Europe, looking back 10 years, we didn't have enough data to make or we there was just way less data. They still made good decisions, but it was maybe harder to make a decision with a narrow uncertainty band. The uncertainty was just way bigger, maybe on a decision, versus now you have just too much information sometimes. You have, you have a webcam on every mountain or on every road piece. You have weather stations all over the place, uh, numerical weather models, 20 of those. So for the operators, now the crux is, it's more like what data to use. And how can we pre-digest the data for them? So I think speaking of data in general, in our industry, this will be evolving heavily in the next few years. And we should not forget the human in this whole equation, I think, uh, because in the end, it's still going to be a human making the decision on where to close a road, when to open, where to throw a bomb, etc. And I think that part will stay As at least for a very long time like that. And that's, I think, a good thing. Um, so I think how will data work with us as humans? I think there we will see the biggest chance in the next few years. Totally. So this is really, yeah, it's getting more and more complicated to uh, yeah, look all those data, especially if, if you have to take a decision in a short time. And uh, yeah. It's it's not getting easier, this job. For sure not, no. Before we started the recording of this interview, you mentioned that the COVID pandemic was quite a challenging time for you and for your team. You have team members spread all over the world. I think you have team members in Chile, in North America, in Norway, 
uh, Central Europe. What were those challenges you faced and um, what are the, the takeaways? What, what did you learn there? Yeah, I, I mean, we all know that I think COVID, of course, was a challenge for everybody. I think there was nobody that was not affected by whatever way. But uh, for us, the challenge was that we really just got started in Canada. We just got started a few years before COVID started in the, in the US. So we were in a, in a growth phase or uh, figuring things out phase, to be more honest. Uh, and, and so you're, you're bringing people on a team and you, you, know, you try to connect. At least the way we like to work, we are really connected. We are, uh, we are having a lot of freedom to make decisions. There's not a lot of, nobody will micromanage you. Know, there's not, you know, you're making the good decisions. So we're trying to bring these people on the team and then we're trusting them and letting them do their thing. Uh, but that means you need to have it, it it comes back to a company culture and that's pretty hard to uh to convey digitally mm -hmm. it, it works to a certain extent it works for a certain amount of time uh but we 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 found that it, at least for the style we want to work we hit the boundaries of digital communication we were set up before covid with uh video conferences, data sharing systems. Uh, so that was normal for us because even before we worked globally uh, in our small scale, but in many different countries, uh, many different time zones, many different cultures, uh, cultures of people, I mean. Uh, but then suddenly you, you cannot meet anymore for a long time period. Uh, that, that was a challenge. And then we had the unfortunate accident of, of Sam uh, right after COVID started. That that put everything into perspective. It suddenly made COVID in general look pretty small, mm -hmm. at least for us. Uh, so that that was that was a challenge, and I think we all, as a team, managed well. But uh, what we did, or we found out, what we have to do is so after COVID was done, we we said we need to meet again. We really need to meet, and so we brought everybody to Switzerland. We we spent a week together, uh, not just. Uh, Doing workshops, so we just went to the mountains, hiked, went to about the hut, and that was great. And that was really needed, especially with the new people. Uh, it's so it, it's hard. It's all great. These video calls, uh, podcasts are awesome, by the way, <laughs> like this one. <laughs> but uh, but you know, every once in a while, you need to sit together and have a coffee or drink a beer or a glass of water or whatever, and and just you know, we're still humans, so we should not forget the human part in this. Yeah, all this technology. I think that's really key. Yeah. We're all happy now that we can we can do that now again. Also during winter times, yes. not last last couple of seasons. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so Walter, maybe also one last question from my side. So if you have now really good insights in both uh, both sides there. Uh in terms of avalanche control. If you could choose one thing that Europe take over or learns from North America and also the other way around, so what would this be? So what what makes uh, North America better or yeah better than than Europe and also the other way? I think it, I don't want to use a too general term, but so if I think for North America, it's what I said before a little bit is this cultural mindset of just giving it a try. Hey, if it doesn't work, 
then we change it. Or, or we say, okay, it didn't work uh, to use this technology or this method or whatever, but we tried and now we know. So to have this, this, this kind of spirit, I find, I find very interesting. And it's not always easy, uh, for sure not, you know, to get funding for all these things or get convince some people that you want to do this, but that's, that's the smallest part. The attitude or the culture to just give it a try, that, that's great. Uh, yeah. And I think on the European side is what we can take over over the ocean, so to say, is uh, I, I think there's so much history. There's so much knowledge. There's so much learnings that were already done. Uh, and, and I think digesting this information uh, is, is not easy or, or, or digesting, even transferring that knowledge is not easy. So I, I think knowledge transfer from some things that are considered maybe old or uh, they did this 50 years ago or 100 years ago, uh, especially thinking of forests or, uh, you know, other mitigation measures, not just blowing stuff up, but, you know, other, other ways to do things. I think there is a lot we can learn there, like looking back. I think to, to move, not to sound like the wise guy here, but to move forward, I think it's great to know uh, where you're coming from. Yeah, totally. And it's great that we can do this this type of networking now with uh, all these people who have been over there or over here, and and also like uh, with communications, modern communications. Um, I think we have a, a high chance to to uh, even learn more from each other in the future, to do some more networking and to reach out to one another and uh, and share the information we have and try to learn and grow together. Thank you very much, Walter, for your time. Thank you very much for being on the on the podcast with us today. Well, thank you. It was awesome. Very interesting. Good questions. And yeah, not always easy to jump between UN, history, technology. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. So thanks very much. And thanks for doing all this work. It's, it's a, what a big piece of the puzzle communication networking as you mentioned so thanks for linking europe to north america in this case that's awesome <laughs> exactly hey have a great season um enjoy enjoy the snow in davos when it when it finally snows one day who knows when <laughs> <laughs> yeah otherwise for sure we will find a good reason that we have to go to canada or the u.s to do some work there and uh, if the snow is better there we, you might find us over there <laughs> exactly <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, thank Paul, you. also for uh, being on the show tonight. Yes, thanks for having me, Matthias. And now you reach the end of this episode. This episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast was produced by Caleb Merrill and myself, Matthias Walcher. Thanks again to our supporters, Wissen Avalanche Control, Ten Bell Brewing and Into West Insurance. And if you like what we're doing, you can also donate us and support us. More information on theavalanchehour.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Or even better, tell a friend. Follow us on the socials, Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Artward credits go to Mike Tia. You can check out his stuff at MikeTia.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks also to Christoph Mitterer, my co-host for today, Paul Dobesberger, and of course, our guest, Walter Steinkogler, for contributing to this show. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, 
and keep having fun out there.